Okay, let's go ahead and get started. I'm glad y'all are all here. Um, I'm Jane Menendez, and this is the newcomers class plus the church kind of coming in and assimilating. So we are glad for the newcomers in here, and we are glad for the ones that are um, strong, long-term members of the Advent. So I'm glad you're here. Um, this, the class, the topic of this, or the title of this class is my God. I'm going to go ahead and close this. Is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is, it's actually from Mark um, chapter 15, verse 34, not 33, um, as it's listed on your handout. Um, and this is really, this class is really born out of my struggle trying to understand this verse. Because I've always found it a very troubling verse. Um, so let me open us with prayer and we'll read the scripture and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we study it this morning, we ask that you, through your spirit, would teach us, instruct us, correct us and reprove us, train us in righteousness, that we might be complete and ready for every good work. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, Y'all have, you have two handouts. The first one is just, um, two passages from Mark, and that's where I'm going to start and just read that scripture because for me, in unpacking, my God, my God, why, has you, why hast thou forsaken me? I really had to kind of go back through and really understand what happened in Gethsemane. So I'm going to start there in Mark, 15, Mark 14 um, and read the thir- starting in the 32nd verse. And you have a handout with this. And this is right immediately after the Last Supper. And they went to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, And then he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us be going. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then he's he's arrested. And he is tried before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the Jewish court. And then they take him to um, Pontius Pilate, which is the Roman court. And he is um, sentenced to death um, by crucifixion. And um, he is tortured and scourged. And um, now we'll pick up in Matthew 15, verse 33. And he's on the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, 
Eloah, Eloah, lama sabachthaniah, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, for, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And one ran, filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The Word of the Lord. Um, I have to begin with a confession. Um, the agony which began in the Garden of Gethsemane and continues on the cross that we just read about really used to bother me. I really couldn't, I couldn't understand it. Um, it, it, it really just, it really bothered me, and I would never really ask anybody, anybody about it because it kind of sounded irreverent. Um, but I would think to myself, you know, Jesus is not surprised in Gethsemane by what's about to happen. He had, pro- he had given a prophecy three times as they were going to Jerusalem that this indeed would happen. And I'm just going to read one of those um, predictions to you, and it's in Mark 10. And they're on the way to Jerusalem, and he says, Behold, and listen to how specific this is. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And he says it in pretty matter-of-fact language. There's not a whole lot of emotion. And in the Gospels, when you read it, Jesus is always in control of the situation. He's never undone. You never see him rattled. And yet, when he gets to, to Gethsemane, you really hear this outpouring of emotion. Um, this, you know, he says he was greatly distressed and troubled. He says to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. One gospel account has him sweating blood, which is a sign of extreme stress. Um, He falls to the ground. He prays that the hour might pass from him, that the cup might be removed. And then his agony continues on the cross with this very plaintive, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And these accounts really bothered me as a child and really as an adult. And privately, I really thought, you know, this is, his anguish is a little unbecoming, a little unseemly. To me, it was not how the hero of the story really should act. And the Sunday school classes that really kind of explored this, I never found very satisfactory. I can remember, you know, being a teenager in a Sunday school class and the teacher saying, well, how would you feel if all your friends deserted you at your hour of need? And I thought, you know, I'd feel bad, but he's Jesus, he's God, and he told them they were going to desert him. So again, he's not taken by surprise. Um, I also remember as an adult um, in this, you know, at the Advent, Um, having a physician talk about crucifixion 
and just what a terrible death it was. And he went into excruciating detail about when you're scourged by the Romans, they put bones on the ends of whips and and hit you and, and you suffocate. And, and I agree, crucifixion would be a terrible death. Um, but it was not a singular event. Many people were crucified. Um, and, I, and I had been reading the accounts of the martyrs, and I was so struck with how differently they approached death from Jesus. Um, a lot of the martyrs went very calmly, very you know, nobly, almost with smiles on their faces to their deaths. Um, if we had time, I'd take you to Acts 7, which is the first account of the first mar is was the account of the first martyr, um, first Christian martyr Stephen, and he was stoned to death. And the contrast between how he approached it with just he was just kind of standing there looking up to heaven, being stoned, and with very peaceful. In contrast to the emotion that's in Gethsemane and um, on the cross. So I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but I really, I really struggled with it. Um, so, and I really thought, okay, why was Jesus' death so different? Why this agony? And I happened to hear a sermon by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, and it was a sermon on the Passion of St. Matthew. And, oh my gosh, it opened my eyes. To, it connected dots that were there all along that I had never really connected. And he really helped me understand that Jesus' agony that we read about in Gethsemane and on the cross sprang not so much from the physical pain, but it really sprang from the spiritual pain that Jesus was under, beginning to experience in Gethsemane and felt on the cross. It was much more a spiritual agony than it was a physical agony. And if you really listen to the prophecies um, and some of, the, of Paul's epistles, you really start to get a glimpse of the enormity of what was accomplished on the cross. And you've got a second handout that kind of has some of the scripture verses that I'm going to use. And I'm going to first go to Isaiah 53. And um, we are approaching Holy Week. And if you get a chance during Holy Week to read the entirety of Isaiah 53, it's a wonderful meditation. Um, for this for this time of year. Um, but Isaiah 53, um, verses 4 and 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. With his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that's what happened on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, brought healing with his stripes, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you really stop and think and let that last phrase of the last sentence in that verse really hit you, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's enormous. Um, Isaiah 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when he makes himself an offering for sin. And on the cross, Jesus was an offering for sin, which is something I really can't even wrap my brain around. Um, Those two verses from Isaiah, I think, really start to give you a glimpse of what was accomplished by Jesus' death. Um, A couple of other places in the Old Testament, and we really could stay here all day. There's so much in the Old Testament that really gives us a context to understand what happened on the cross. But I'm going to look at at two things. One is Genesis 22, which is, to me, another troubling thing in the Bible. This is when Abraham is told to go offer his son Isaac um, as a sacrifice. And you don't have it on your um, handout because I've added this after I had done the handout. So, sorry. Um, And I'm not going to read the whole thing because I think some of this is, is, is very familiar. But listen to the parallels um, with Jesus on the cross. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. And the Lord said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And a couple of things with this. Um, when he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, does anybody in here know how many sons Abraham had? Marilyn? He had two. At this time, he had two. He had Ishmael, who was his firstborn, and Isaac, who was his secondborn. But here God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And that translation, the only son, Isaac, really means the unique son the son of the promise, because Isaac was the only son that Abraham and Sarah had together. And that, and Isaac was the son of promise. He was the u- unique son. Well, this phrase, take your son, your only son, is really picked up by the gospel writer John in his wonderful prologue, where he says, and this is, and again, you don't have this on your handout, I apologize. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then a little bit further he writes, No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who um, is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. And that phrase, the only Son, which is echoed from Genesis 2, picked up in John, really refers to the same thing, the unique son, the son of the promise. So it's really kind of a neat little parallel there. But again, um, back to Genesis 2, um, Abraham takes his son and they go to Moriah, which most people think is Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was crucified. Um, And they get there. And it's interesting, Isaac carries um, the wood um, for the fire, kind of like Jesus carried his cross. But they get there, and this is what I think is so interesting. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both, both of them went together. Just one interesting thing on this. When he says to his father Abraham, my father. That's the same word as Abba, father, 
that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love the God will provide himself a lamb. And so they get, they get up to, the, to where they're going to do the sacrifice. And Abraham is willing to go through it. And at the last moment, um, God stays his hand and says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And um, it's just to me the remarkable, the parallels between this and Jesus on the cross. But I think one thing that is so interesting about this passage is Abraham calls the name of that place not Abraham had great faith or Abraham passed the test, but he names it the Lord will provide. And that is, boy, if you, that, that's the truth that you see from Genesis to Revelation is that the Lord will provide. And so you really see some foreshadowing of the cross in Genesis. You hear it picked up with Isaiah the prophets and in other prophets. And then this, this situation in Genesis 2 obviously preceded Moses and the Mosaic laws. But when Moses instituted all the series of sacrifices that seem kind of confusing to us, or at least it does to me, all these sacrifices, um, what you see both in the tabernacle sacrifices and in the sacrifices in the temple is this underlying foundation of the notion of substitution. And what I mean by that is that a priest, when it was time for like the atonement, the atonement of sins, there would be an animal who would be brought forward to sacrifice, kind of like the lamb in Genesis 22. And the priest would put his hand on the head of the animal. And in doing so, what everybody understood is their sins, corporate and individual, were transferred to this animal, this animal without blemish, without spot. And that animal would be killed in their stead and they would have atonement for sins. And they would do this on an annual basis. But that really is that notion of substitution really underlies all of the systems of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? But real important. So you really, the more you understand the Old Testament, you really do get a better context Um, for really what took place on the cross. And again, we could stay here all day, but that's enough for right now. So you really see it in Genesis 22. You see it in the prophets. You see it in the Mosaic Law. Um, So we have that as a backdrop. But now also let's look at the New Testament. Here's some things that St. Paul writes. Um, In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made Jesus to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So Christ became a curse 
so we would not be cursed. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus is an offering and a sacrifice for God, and he's giving himself up for us. And I can remember, as I was really trying to understand this, going to Paul Zoll when he was here. Paul Zoll used to be the dean of the cathedral before Frank Limehouse. And I went to him and I said, okay, Paul, when it says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did God really forsake Jesus? And Paul Zoll said this, and I wrote it down because I needed to get it in my head. Paul said, this is an essential, crucial, profound truth. Jesus Christ became sin. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God. God turned his back on Jesus. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the agony of that, trans- that transaction of becoming sin, of taking on all our sins, began in the garden and continues on the cross. And I don't think we can fully imagine the horror of being without sin and having to become sin. Um, I don't think we can imagine the horror of Jesus who had always been one with God. Remember how John says it so beautifully in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, The horror of of always being one with the Father and then being separated from the Father. Martin Luther said of Jesus, no one ever feared death so much as this man. And the severing of the relationship that you start to see in Gethsemane triggers this outpouring of grief. Charles Spurgeon, and this is in your handout, writes this. In Gethsemane, all seems changed. His peace is gone. His calm is turned to tempest. Notice that, his, that all his life long, you scarcely find him uttering an expression of grief. And yet here he says, not only by his sighs and by his bloody sweat, but in so many words, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Gethsemane, it was the shadow of the coming tempest. It was a prelude of the dread desertion which he had to endure. When he stood where we ought to have stood and paid to his father's justice the debt which was due from us, it was this which laid him low. To be treated as a sinner, to be smitten as a sinner, though in him was no sin, this it was which caused him the agony of which our text speaks. So Gethsemane was the shadow of the coming trial when Jesus would become sin so we would be righteous. When Jesus would become a curse so we could be blessed. When Jesus would be forsaken so we could be saved. When Jesus would be rejected so we could be accepted. And, you know, when you really do reflect on how Christ Jesus and the Father had always been one 
and in the in Gethsemane, the separation begins and God withdraws. Um, I don't know how many of y'all saw the Passion, um, and you know, say what you will about Mel Gibson, but I really thought the way he captured Gethsemane was really beautiful, because Jesus, I mean, he is going through this, and as Jesus is going to pray, this rack of clouds comes in. And every light in the night sky is extinguished. And you really do get this feeling of God turning his back on Jesus. And you can almost feel the coldness in the garden um, without the light and in Jesus's, and with Jesus' pain. Um, look at his prayer, and this is back to Mark, um, in Mark 14. He says... Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. And just a couple of points. One, Abba, Father, really accentuates the relationship. It throws into relief what Jesus is about to lose. Um, This take this cup from me. Um, The cup is an Old Testament term for the wrath of God. It's the cup of his wrath. It's called the cup of staggering, um, the cup of God's judgment. And the cup really represents God's anger at sin. And Spurgeon writes, all hell was distilled into that cup of which our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was made to drink. Um, The hour had come and Jesus staggered before it. He was now about to taste death. For every man to bear the curse which was due to sinners because he stood in our place and suffered in our stead. And then you get to the cross, chapter 15, verse 54. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, this is Spurgeon. He writes, I don't think that the records of time or even eternity, contain a sentence full of more profound pain. Here the wormwood and the gall are outdone. It is God who has forsaken him. You notice he doesn't say, Peter, Peter, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, Israel, Israel, why have you forsaken me? Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or even mankind, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, It is God who has forsaken him, but Jesus is obedient unto death. Notice his cry is not against God, but his cry is to God. My God, my God, um, a double effort, if you will, to draw near. And it really is an example of true sonship. Another thing, he's quoting scripture. And I've always, you know how there's a red letter edition of the Bible? I've always wanted a purple edition, which has all the words that Jesus said in it that are quoting the Old Testament. Because I bet 60 to 70% of what he says is quoting the Old Testament. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. And if you come to the Maundy Thursday service, the choir will sing it and it's beautiful. But when you read it, you are just, it's kind of like Isaiah 53. 
it just, it's uncanny how it parallels what is happening to Jesus on the cross. Um, and again, a good psalm to, to really meditate on during, during um, Holy Week. So he is, he's quoting scripture. And then the last point I'd make about this is I think it's so extraordinary that he puts his lament into the form of a question. And Jesus always uses, it's funny when you read the, the, the Gospels, Jesus is always purposeful about everything. And he uses questions to great effect. And his questions are really to make us think. And here, at the point of agony, he's asking a question that makes us look for the answer. He is trying to turn our eyes in the direction of the answer. To turn our eyes in the direction of hope and joy and life. Because why is he forsaken? Why is Jesus being forsaken? For us. Yeah. Andrew said it in the, in the sermon today that Jesus' focus and attention is on us when he's on the cross. Um, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. We're the joy. We're the joy that was set before him. Um, a couple of quick verses just to flesh this out from Romans. Again, St. Paul tells us that God shows his love for us, even that, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then again in Romans, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. And then another verse from Romans, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So you see that Christ died for us. On the cross, he brought acquittal and life for us. It was remarkable what was accomplished on the cross. And it really reveals the full measure of God's love for us. Um, the choir during the offertory sang a beautiful um, anthem on John 3:16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, again the only son, um, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why was he forsaken? He was forsaken so we wouldn't be. He gave his life as a ransom for us, his life for ours. Why did he die? Why was he forsaken? It was for a purpose. It wasn't just, it wasn't just a death. There was a purpose to it. And a quick illustration, if I was out in my driveway and my child was playing there with me, and, I, and there was a car coming by, and I looked at my child and said, I love you so much, I'm going to jump in front of this car and be killed. That would be pointless, it would be cruel, and it would accomplish nothing. But if I was in my driveway and there's a car coming by and my child was going out in front of the car and I jumped to push that child out of harm's way and was killed in the process, that would show 
my love for my child, that I was willing to give my life for his. Christ's death on the cross had a purpose. It accomplished. He pushed us out of danger. He put himself in between us and the danger. Um, And a lot of times, um, we tend to underestimate our danger. We tend to downplay sin. We tend to downplay hell. Um, But boy, when you read some of the things that Jesus said about hell and sin, you really realize it's something we should take very seriously. And I'll just give you one quick example. And this is out of Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And he goes on and says about your foot, cut it off or pluck your eye out. He is very serious about sin. And one thing, if you think about it, the cure has to be proportional to the problem. And if the cure is God emptying himself, taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, to live for the purpose of offering himself as a sacrifice on a cross, if that's the cure, the problem, and that's a pretty, I think you would agree, a pretty extreme cure, then our problem has to be proportional. Our problem really has to be really real. And Jesus puts himself in between us and the cross. Um, One last illustration, um, and this is from A Tale of Two Cities. I don't know if you're familiar, Charles Dickens' novel set in France during the French Revolution, and it involves two men. I mean, this is, it involves a lot more than this, but the part that I'm going to focus in. Two men, um, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. And Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay both love the same woman, but she loves Charles Darnay. And they get married. Charles Darnay runs afoul of the revolutionary government in Paris. And he is put in prison, and he is sentenced to go to the guillotine the next morning. His wife is bereft. Sidney Carton, who really still loves this other man's wife, does the following thing. And it's an extraordinary scene. He ends up, well, I'll just read it. The door was quickly opened and closed. And there stood before Charles Darnay, face to face. He was quiet, intent upon him, with the light of a smile on his feature and a cautionary finger on his lips. There stood Sidney Carton. So Sidney Carton has gotten into the prison cell. And Sidney Carton says this, You have no time to ask what I'm doing. Just comply with what I say. Take off those boots you wear and draw on these of mine. There was a chair against the wall of the cell behind the prisoner. Carton, pressing forward, had already, with the speed of lightning, got Charles Darnay down into it and stood over him barefoot. Quick, draw these boots on of mine. Put your hands to them. Put your will to it. Here, change that cravat for this of mine, that coat for this of mine. While you do it, let me take this ribbon from your hair and shake out your hair like this of mine. With wonderful quickness and with a strength both of will and action that appeared quite supernatural, he forced all these changes upon him. The prisoner was like a a young child in his hands. And so what happens is Charles Darnay 
comes in, I mean, is in the prison cell, Sidney Carton comes in, and they exchange clothes. And Sidney Carton actually drugs Charles Darnay to be able to make all this happen, and then has him spirited out of the prison with um, Sidney Carton's identity in his pocket. And Sidney Carton, dressed as Charles Darnay, goes to the guillotine in his friend's place. And one person, another fellow prisoner, is the only person who notices the change. And she says this, Are you dying for him? She whispered. And his wife and child, hush, yes. And it's just a beautiful passage. And it is a wonderful depiction of what Jesus Christ does for us. Because we are in prison. We are guilty. Our sins um, are like scarlet. And Jesus Christ comes in and says, Take off those filthy rags that you wear and put on my white raiment. Here, take the ring off my finger. Put it on yours. And he sends us out with, as new creatures with new identities. And he goes to the cross in our stead. And he does it because he loves us. And if we could really understand the magnitude of that love that's borne out on the cross, we would live incredibly peaceful, joyous, serving lives. It would change us when we really take that into our hearts. I want to close with a Charles, this is a um, Charles Wesley hymn. And you're going to have to bear with me. You've got the words to it. It's called Amazing Love. And it's a hymn that we no longer sing. It's no longer in the prayer book. We have sung it, but we have to write the words kind of like we did right on, right on. Um, but this is a contemporary version of an old, old hymn. But the words are original. So listen. Can y'all hear that? The words are just incredible.
but just a wonderful hymn that just really captures um, what took place on the cross. Um, let me close this in prayer, and those who need to leave can. If anybody has any questions, we can talk about that after the prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, um, we do thank you for how fully and completely you love us. And Lord, we just ask that you would deepen and enrich our understanding of your amazing love for each and every one of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.